This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. Now, Gab Marcotti is currently making his way through the Yorkshire Dales to raise funds for Parkinson's UK. So we wish him all the very best for that. And he will be back with me on Thursday. But in the studio with me right now, a man who likes a bit of a bit of a run himself. That is The Times Chief Sports Writer, Matt Dickinson. Morning, Matt. Hi, Natalie. And down the line, The Times resident stats man. It's Bill Edgar. Hi, Bill. Hi, Natalie. Uh, Later on, we're going to be discussing a pair of revealing interviews with Hector Bellerin and Peter Crouch, plus a whole new era for the women's game in this country. But first, we begin with England. Gareth Southgate's World Cup semi-finalists suffered their first home defeat in a competitive match for over a decade. Spain were the victors by two goals to one at Wembley in the Nations League on Saturday night. Matt, what were the positives for Southgate? Uh, I think the positives, individuals-wise, were uh, Marcus Rashford um, obviously scored a lovely goal and could have scored more, um, but was bright, I thought, um, in bursts. Um, obviously, his confidence is still a bit fragile from what's happening at Man United, but um, yeah, I thought he, you know, Raheem Sterling was out and he stepped up and alongside a Harry Kane, who's still not looking quite the player he can be. Um, Rashford was bright. I thought Gomez came in. And, um, and looked like a very good defender that he's looking like for Liverpool. So I think it's that's created an interesting situation where Carl Walker um, is not in the team at the moment and, and with Trippier and Gomez um, you know, doing their jobs very well, um, that's going to be a fascinating uh, selection to see over the, the coming months for Southgate. But apart from that, there was bursts of of little bits of good play but as as Gareth Southgate rightly said afterwards Spain gave them a bit of a lesson in ball retention in in passing through midfield uh, and and in other ways you mentioned there about Carl Walker of course he's been imperious for Manchester City he's a title winner he was a, a starter in Russia as well but do you think that was only ever a, a temporary solution for Southgate 
I thought, I thought it was a, an inventive solution, but I think, and at times, um, it, it, it looked a clever one. But I think by the end of the tournament, there were certain yeah, moments where we were seeing that Carl Walker was not a central defender a couple of times and a couple of absolutely crucial moments where players were just getting ahead of him or he, you know, he wasn't attacking uh, the ball uh, as a centre-half classic centre-half might uh, and I think Tony Cascarino writes about it in the game today and just says that Gomez just looks a bit more assured looks a bit more certain positionally looks like he knows, understands the role a bit better at, as well as bringing an um, extraordinary long throw that happened almost in the last minute Gomez, that's, that's going to add to England's uh, set-piece arsenal certainly so I think if Carl Walker is going to get back in the team it's more likely to be a right wing-back but of course, Trippier brings set pieces, crucial set pieces, um, as we saw in the World Cup. So it's a lovely position to be in. Um, who knows how form will fluctuate? Who knows, you know, different profiles are needed. Carl Walker obviously is lightning quick and brings a slightly different game. So um, certainly in that position, um, which we can't say across the whole team, uh, Southgate's sport for choice. Mm. Uh, Bill, what do you think? Do you, do you think Gareth Southgate needs to find a place for, for Walker in his team? It's a difficult one for Walker because with Man City this year, he's playing uh, in a back four, but uh, as the right back, he's attacking much less than Mendy is attacking on the left for City. So he's not getting forward that much at all. Now, he, he brings a lot to to his uh, the teams he plays for when he's charging forward at you know, really a great pace. Okay, his delivery's not quite as good as Trippier, but I mean, he's a really he's a strong contender as a authentic right back or right wing back but he's, he's not really getting that that practice with Manchester City as it is he's sort of a uh, was a half right back half tucked in centre back so really he's playing more in this England role at City at the moment so he's up against uh, Gomez in that respect and obviously Gomez has, has had a great start to the season and seems would probably be a, a better long term bet so he's slightly fearful Walker he's sort of being a uh, squeezed out or, or he's halfway between the two positions and you can see Trippier uh, as right wing back and Gomez as a right centre back being the long term solutions. Uh, we've spoken Bill about um, Luke Shaw before on this podcast he was of course a high profile addition at left wing back and performed really well before that unfortunate injury that saw him uh, taken off on a stretcher um, if he could only just stay fit. Yeah, he seems to be cursed. I mean, he was before he got his, he broke his leg against PSV Eindhoven. I thought he was playing absolutely brilliantly for Manchester United, but a, a complete uh, certainty for for England. He should have been at that stage, but he obviously broke his leg terribly. Took it ages to get back. But then when he got back, he seemed to be doing okay, but he was picked on by Mourinho. That was unpleasant for him. And he, he was at one point he was the fourth choice left back for Manchester United twelve months ago. Uh, there was Blint. Uh, Darmy and an Ashley Young all getting picked ahead of him at uh, left back. So I mean, he was really active. He's, he's come back again now. It's a good start to the season, and now he bashes his head. Okay, so at least uh, it seems he should be back by uh, next Saturday. Uh, he'll be he'll miss England's uh, midweek game uh, against Switzerland, but he, he should be back for Manchester United. So let's just hope it's a, a brief setback this time. But uh, but yes, in. Uh, 
you know, I think let's just give him a whole season just to get his, you know, get him to top form, and, and he could be England's long-term left back. Mm. Uh, Matt, you spoke of, about the bright spark of Marcus Rashford, who came in for the injured Raheem Sterling. We all know, of course, Rashford's had a, a terrible time of it at club level this season, but he seems to be much happier uh, playing on the international scene and maybe playing for a manager that believes in him. Well, I think that that is a, a key point, and it's 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 been great, you know. And we saw it at the World Cup and going into the World Cup um, to see players who actually were relishing playing for England. You know, it might be because of individual circumstances at clubs. It might be because, in sadly, in a lot of cases, they can't get games for their clubs. Um, Loftus Cheek and so on, who will hope obviously to to get a start. Um, tomorrow night uh, against Switzerland so Fabian Delph another you know who, who's I don't think he's played a minute for Manchester City he's got more chance of playing for England so that you know in some ways I think Gareth Southgate's done a good job of harnessing that frustration he's of, of trying to obviously we saw a sort of positive spirit coming out of the summer and, and players wanting to be part of this England journey and I think in some ways that was almost the the key gain and that's what Gareth Southgate needs to keep going because obviously you start a, uh, I know the Nations League, you know, itself is a sort of standalone competition. And actually, I thought it was a good arrival. It, it, it you know, we sometimes come back from a, a summer tournament and we, we lurch straight into either a very flat friendly or a, a sort of underwhelming qualifier a, a, against someone. And actually, great playing against Spain in what felt a pretty competitive game was great. And, and for Rashford, obviously, he. He sought to step up. There was that really frustrating mischance later on. He did everything right until the finish. I just, you know, he could, basically he could have passed the ball, passed the De Gea and, and, and shot at him. But, um, you know, I think he'll, he'll come away generally thinking that, um, you know, he put himself about well, made some good runs and, and can hope to keep in and around the England team. You spoke about the positives of, of what Gareth Southgate has on that right-hand side, but the, the midfield conundrum continues of course we've spoken about it uh, from the summer heroics in Russia Southgate said of the game Spain pressed us and we didn't keep the ball well enough the system in Spain has produced some of the best midfielders in the world he says we are a different profile of players who can't play like they do so what Matt is the solution huh, that's just, that's the pretty much the question we've been I feel like I've been debating for the last 20 years more than any other I mean this is back to the heart of yeah I mean Henry Winter has written a whole book on it. It, it. You know, the production of English footballers, the production of creative English footballers, of technical English footballers is, you know, I mean, this this is a debate that takes us from, you know, your kids, my kids on the park pitch right up to the very elite of the game. I, I think Gareth also went on to say that he thinks the profile of players uh, is sh- shifting in this country at, at, at every level. And I think he's right. I mean, I spend too many of my Sunday mornings on park pitches and I do think the kids coming through now aspire to be a different type of player I think they've had role models like Thierry Henry and Bergkamp and, and, and through to David Silva and I think there is a different aspiration I think the English emphasis on physicality is is shifting a bit but cultural changes can take decades can take generations and I think we're yeah, we, we're getting somewhere slightly different for English football, but it's going to take time. And it, obviously that process takes even longer when, you know, as we're back to the the pathway, the blockage, um, we have players like, say, Loftus-Cheek who are stuck a bit. You know, he's at Chelsea, but he's struggling to get a regular game. Mm. Uh, Bill, where do you stand on this? How, how do England go about creating the creativity that they're lacking? 
Yeah, um, I, I mean, if they're thinking of having a sort of passing midfield like Spain's, well, yes, it'll be, uh, it's 10 years, really, of, uh, of all the academies playing that way. I mean, you could see it happening, but it's going to take 10 years, you know. If you, if you sort of in microcosm, you can see uh, teams um, trying to play out from the back now from the goalkeeper. Manchester City uh, tried it when Guardiola arrived, and, and they were they were messing up terribly. Lots of people were saying, was it just ridiculous you know stones is losing all the time bravo is losing all the time it's not going to work and it took them a year or two to get get the hang of playing out from the goalkeeper now the other teams are trying it and making all sorts of mistakes and you know give them a year or two and they'll sort of get it right but um in terms of passing around the whole generally around the pitch in the midfield uh england's players are you know years and years behind uh spain's um, the likes of Thiago. Um, so it's going to take many years before they can match them in that way. So if they want to match them in that way, then you know it's going to take a long time. Of course, they, they may decide that uh, to, to, to take up a different approach, um, and, and then um, you know another philosophy will become uh, uh, trendy and they'll change things. But if, if they want to be a passing team, they, they're not going to outpass Spain for many years yet. Um, just looking ahead to the game on Tuesday, which is, of course, Switzerland. It's a friendly, of course. Um, Leicester's Damare Gray and uh, Ben Chilwell have been added to the squad, uh, both promoted from the under-21s. Uh, Matt, for you, is there a player who wasn't in the England squad this time around that you'd have liked to have seen given a chance, perhaps looking ahead for the Croatia game in October? Um, well, I mean, coming off the World Cup, the only one of... I mean, because bearing in mind how young this squad is, as it is, um, I think the only player that I could really see young player sort of surging through probably be Ryan Sessegnon uh, you know and, and obviously Luke Shaw came in at left wing back and, and did did well certainly a lovely pass for, for, for Rashford's goal until that unfortunate um, bang in the head but Sessegnon is a very versatile player he's certainly said to be very mature for his years um, I don't think Gareth Southgate's in a rush. Um, I think he wants to sort of make these players feel like they have to really earn their place, but I can certainly see him um, over the next year really pushing his way into the squad. Bill, is there anyone that you uh, think should be in the England squad? Uh, Well, I mean, Phil Foden is clearly a top-class player at Manchester City, the young midfielder. Um, He's probably not ready for the England squad yet, but it's just a shame he's not playing. You know, if, if he's playing regularly, say for a, a middle-ranking Premier League team, after a year or so, you'd say, well, it's very likely he'd be ready for the England team because he looks a fantastic player. But uh, as it is, he's, he's not even getting off the bench for Manchester City, so he's wasting time, really. Um, so given that, I can't see many other obvious alternatives at the moment now. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. While on the subject of England and Spain, there are two interviews you could read in The Times this weekend with internationals from both nations. Peter Crouch spoke to Ben Machel and Hector Bayerin was in conversation with Matthew Side. Both fascinating interviews and we urge you to check them out at thetimes.co.uk. But in the words of Bayerin, act differently and it makes you a target. Bayerin is someone who's spoken at Oxford Union. He's attended London Fashion Week. 
He's not your average footballer, I suppose. Uh, Matt, why don't more players show off their personality and interests, do you think? Uh, I mean, they, they were both, as you said, absolutely great interviews. Um, and I guess, in answer to your question, there is a certain, well, a, a very definite pressure to conform in football. I think we've seen that, um, you know, uh, some very high-profile examples. I guess Graham Lasso is, is is probably the the, the the classic case where someone who... Um, you know, was was a little different. He was a sort of, you know, middle class lad who read the Guardian, and and that was enough to, as we know, to get him, you know, appalling homophobic abuse, not just from fans but from fellow England internationals. You know, the the the, the dreadful incident with with Robbie Fowler, and I think, on the one hand, that was a an individual story. On the other, it was symptomatic of what we're discussing here about about conformity. I, I think there's that boys. Um, culture, uh, uh, you know, you imagine a, a football dressing room is a very macho environment, a highly competitive environment. The only way you want to stand out is is for talent, and that brings its own pressures. Um, you know, I, I, all of us, I guess, have experienced in a very small way just in, you know, playing at, at the sort of rubbish part levels. But you imagine if you're spending your entire working life around that, that really, say, it does build up pressures on players and and as as Hector Bellerin talked about it can become crushing it can become its own pressure to conform and obviously uh, Matthew Sides written about it today in his column from the terraces it can turn into pretty cruel uh, pretty cruel abuse and I, you know I think there is a, a culture of abuse that's that's built up in football and it probably gets more and more polarized by Twitter and social media and, and so on that it's these guys are fair game um, because they earn the money they earn. You know, it's that sort of classic line, I've, I've, I've paid my ticket money, I'm, a, I'm allowed to say what I want. Well, I'm not sure that should be the case. From your time in Russia, did you get to see the personalities of the England squad and hear about their interests that perhaps you wouldn't have known otherwise? Well, I think one of the absolutely key planks of you know I mean ultimately they'll be judged on on results and performances but performances certainly in an England shirt can be helped if a player feels good about himself feels relaxed feels like he you know he has he is supported by the country you know he's not walking out there terrified of what the reaction is going to be and one way to 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 win over that affection from the public is to go out and tell your story I, I think it's absolutely one of the German um journalists came up to me and just said sort of what's changed about England I said well it all comes back to Gareth Southgate and, and a key moment in, in Gareth's reign was telling these players, you guys haven't just sort of fluked your way into an England squad. You know, you've you've had to overcome incredible obstacles. You've had to overcome thousands and thousands of rival competitors. You've, you know, and, and most famously sort of came out through Danny Rose. He's had to overcome uh, spells of depression. And where is that the type of story that I think for a long time would have been kept secret and, and the, the player would have had to sort of stew on it he said to to these guys look go out and tell those stories and Danny Rose came out and told his story and a it was very powerfully affecting about what he had overcome and b it serves a wider purpose of 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 certainly among males of talking about these sort of problems and I think it got Danny Rose um 
say, a degree of, of admiration that wouldn't have happened otherwise, you know, but it needed the manager to tell these guys, look, you've got a story to tell, go and tell it. Mm. Uh, Peter Crouch, Bill, he talks about never looking like a footballer, always being defined by his height and how that's given him a, a self-deprecating sense of humour. Uh, in this age of the, the super athlete, are we in danger of losing the characters from the game? Um, yeah, if you mean kind of players of different shape, I guess. Um, yes, well, if you, I don't know, if you go back to 40 years, you see matches then, the players would be slightly uh, different shapes, might be podgier at times, uh, which you just don't get now at all. The, the point about players getting stick, I mean, you, there is this dressing room culture of so-called banter, everybody, you know, anybody who stands out or all his teammates will have a big laugh about it. And you can see the temptation just to fit in, you know. If everybody else is having a tattoo, I'll have a tattoo. You know, you do exactly the same. Peter Crouch is six foot seven. Rival fans, or if there's any way of getting it, a, a rival player will do it, you know, just purely for the game for their own team. Or they could be a more sinister side of things. So, um for example, if you're you're shouting homophobic abuse, then it's you know it's a reflection of your own prejudice, and um, so it's it's two elements to it perhaps. But I mean, you can see why uh, players are reluctant to say they are uh, gay. For example, there must have been, statistically there must have been thousands of gay footballers in the English leagues over the past few decades. Has to have been, but none has come out uh, during their careers. So uh, just that basically that says everything about this. Uh, requirement that players feel just not to not to stand out at all it's, it's a terrible of course well i mean hector Bayerin, he he talks to matthew side about some of the homophobic abuse he's received based on uh, on some of his outfits of course social media comes into this it's a, a, an easy way for for people to criticize and and uh, you know attack people uh, bellerin concludes that it's impossible that anybody could be openly gay in football he says some fans just aren't ready matt do you agree with that um, I remember talking about this with Thomas Hitzelsberger. I mean, he he obviously ca- he came out um, after he had finished playing, and, and I know he had deliberated whether he could come out towards the end of his reign. And and there's a couple of sort of key things. There's a there's obviously the fear of of abuse, which you know I'd, I'd like to think obviously the, the media would would certainly be fully supportive. I'd like to think we would hopefully have some small influence on you know trying to. To, to spread the word that this should be greeted positively but yeah there will always be that fear that whether it's from fans other fans etc that but i think there was a bit of key point that hitzelsberger made to me which maybe we don't dwell on so much is that whoever comes out will be required to be a crusader and he was saying that that's a huge pressure i mean not only you know when you come out does that have you know huge uh pressures in itself you know you've got to tell friends you've got to tell f- family you know coping with that but then everyone would want to speak to you about it everyone would want you to to campaign for it everyone would want you to be the face of it and he was saying that that's that might actually be the hardest thing that you can't just sort of make a statement and get on with your life you will be repeatedly asked about it and he said that's the bit that in some ways he was most nervous of and why he left it till he had finished playing and i think that's that's the bit that that you know will it'll be interesting to see when a player event you know it will happen and a player will eventually come out as gay but you can see why it's why they're in no rush to you'd have to get sort of 10 15 uh, gay footballers all to all to come out together to kind of uh, you know spread the load as it were that, that might be the 
the way to do it because it's all also absurd though um to think that uh it's of any uh concern of other people's you know what you do in your private life i mean it, you know when you think about it seriously it's just absolutely ridiculous you know it's a shocking indictment on humanity but uh, unfortunately it's something you have to deal with it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's time now to look back at our predictions league. Myself and Gab Marcotti going head-to-head and guessing scorelines from featured games. We didn't take a break just because it was International Week, uh, so we tried our hand at a, a few Nations League fixtures. Both Gab and I thought his beloved Italy would beat Poland, but the best Roberto Mancini's side could muster was a draw. We both predicted a draw between England and Spain and would have been right were it not for Danny Welbeck's disallowed goal. I foresaw a French victory over Holland, while Gab incorrectly called a goalless draw. That's one to me then. But Gab, despite claiming to not care about the Football League, well, he seems to be bossing it this season when it comes to the lower divisions. He correctly predicted Exeter's victory over Harry Kiel's Notts County. And not only did he guess that Jerry Barton's Fleetwood would draw at Sunderland, he predicted the correct scoreline as well. He went for 1-1. So, it is another win for Gab. And all I can say is, I am glad he is not here in the studio because he would be celebrating. The new season of the Women's Super League kicked off this weekend and it's set to be a campaign unlike any other before. Joining us now to explain more is Rebecca Myers from the Sunday Times. Morning to you, Rebecca. Good morning, Natalie. Hi. Hello, hello. Now, the uh, WSL is now made up of 11 clubs in the top tier, all of them professional for the first time ever. Uh, How did this come about, Rebecca? It's been part of a quite massive restructure, actually, from the FA, um, which has been taking place really over the past um, year or so. But actually, obviously, this goes back much um, much longer in terms of planning. Also, the Women's Super League has undergone massive changes almost year on year. Um, certainly the, the biggest change we've seen in recent years has been the move back to a winter league um, to match the men's. We, we did have a summer league before um, and it was decided that this wasn't sort of the best idea for the game. And now, yeah, this move to entirely professional top tier. Um, there were also sort of licensing rules to do with the championship, which is now the second tier um, and the leagues below that. Um, and they've had it's everything from renaming them, um, you know, before the women's premier league was actually a very, um, it was a much lower division of the league, which obviously causes great confusion for fans who want to move over from the, the men's game um, to start enjoying women's football. So they've done everything from that to then 
dictating the hours that women have to train for, uh, the money that clubs have to put in, all of that is, is part of this new restructure. Yes, as you say, huge restructuring. And so how much of a landmark moment is this for the women's game, bearing in mind now we have these 11 professional clubs? Personally, I think it's huge. Um, I think the women's game will probably never be the same again, really, just because once you've put that in place, hopefully in future, every year will look like this. Every year will be increasingly professional. Um, and that's a big deal for um, certainly a sport that was until 1971 actually banned outright by the FA. I think we can never quite um, underestimate how recent a lot, a lot of these changes have taken place. You've written about some concerns over sustainability. Below the WSL level, we've heard about Wilfred Zaha's donation to Crystal Palace, for example, and their women's team to help support them. Do you think professionalism in the top tier could actually be damaging for clubs that are still amateur? I definitely think that's something that we need to, um, people within the game, um, everyone from the FA, FA through to fans need to be monitoring this season in particular. This will really um, be when we can tell. There was actually a great uh, piece in the Times on Saturday as well, which mentioned, uh, which interviewed the manager of Yeovil Town. Um, and he was saying that, you know, he's got an incredibly young squad basically because the wages aren't very high and women in their sort of, let's say, mid-20s through to mid-30s can't necessarily afford to be playing quote-unquote professionally because the wages aren't high enough yet. So that's affecting even these professional clubs in the top tier. And that's before you get through you know, right down to the the lower leagues. I think a great example as well is the Doncaster Rovers Bells. They are a legendary women's football team. They've won the FA Cup before. You know, they've played in the top tier, but they this season will move right down to the third tier um, simply because they cannot meet the financial requirements. And that feels, I think, to a lot of fans, very deeply unfair. Football is about how well your teams play and, and that's not the case for this team and it, it won't be the case this year or next year in, in the WSL. Mm, yeah, that's certainly shocking to hear about uh, Doncaster. You, you've already um, mentioned about the second tier now known as the Championship and we have the newly reformed Manchester United managed by Casey Stoney. There were 12-0 winners against Aston Villa in their league opener yesterday. How beneficial is it to have the Manchester United brand in the women's game, Rebecca? I think it is hugely beneficial. I think largely because not having a Manchester United brand was so damaging. Um, I mean, it was just, it was becoming this sort of strange thing where people, certainly people who didn't follow the women's game wouldn't know that Manchester United didn't have a women's team. And it just, it was just that sort of, but why? And I think it really started to mean more than it perhaps needed to. Whereas now that they've committed, I think that's great. We saw they're having great attendances. Um, That can only be a good thing. And the more people who, you know, support their men's team and then decide to support their women's team as well which any sort of any person who enjoys watching football should I think the better and Manchester United is going to have a great strong fan base for that kind of conversion Yesterday Liverpool were beaten 5-0 at Arsenal in the WSL they're managed by Neil Redfern who of course is the former Leeds boss from the men's game Mm. Um, he's the first ever person to manage in the football league in the men's game and then make the transition into the women's game do you think we could see uh, more of that happening in the future? I definitely hope so, and I, and I definitely think so. I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he, he's brilliant, um, and he's just very... He just obviously doesn't really see it as a big deal. It was a natural move for him. It's a brilliant club. Um, you know, he's been at a couple of ladies' teams now, and I think, you know, he's a fantastic manager, and I think just having someone... It's almost you can't be what you can't see, and if managers within the men's game see someone did making a successful move into the women's game, um, by and large, he has had pretty good results since he's been in the women's game... I think more people will do it. Um, and certainly, 
I, I would suggest I'm not a manager, obviously I can't say for sure, but I think it's a very gratifying role to have, you know, female footballers are just so delighted to play, they want to learn all the time, this is what I hear from managers, they say the women are so hungry to learn, they're so keen to sort of improve, um, as opposed to certainly the, the lower end of the men's game, which can be incredibly sort of savage and, and they'll fire you within five minutes. I think the women's game is more forgiving at this stage because we're still learning so much. And we have to give a special mention to, to Lewis FC. Now, they claim to be the only football club in the world, Rebecca, who are paying men and women the same. So I'm guessing it's going to be quite a while before we see a female player on £300,000 a week. But it's a right step in the right direction, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, we are very far away from um, the men's wages, but you know, we, we wouldn't get there that quickly anyway. Um, I think Lewis are fantastic because they've just sort of looked at it and gone, you know, why wouldn't we? Their men's team play um, in one of the low leagues and, and they're not on the kind of wages that, uh, you know, Crystal Palace or, or Man United players are. Um, and so I think the club thought there's no real reason why we can't just make that um, make that investment equal. And actually the women's team now are playing in the second tier. They've moved up into the, the women's championship and they're doing great. You know, they beat Charlton 5-0 the other week. They're, they're an impressive club. Um, and I think you can see it in the way the players sort of hold themselves. They've been told that they are, you know, just as worthwhile as the men and, and they're putting just as many hours in. So I'm, I'm really impressed by that club. And I think other clubs of that level who don't pay their men, you know, £100,000 a week or whatever, could look to make a similar move, certainly in terms of investing in, in training and coaching and, and facilities. Yeah, it certainly is a great statement from uh, Lewis FC. And just finally, Rebecca, the women's game for you is just growing stronger and stronger. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely think so. I think there will be teething problems this year. And I think, you know, it's important that we recognise that it's not perfect. This is a very drastic move. Um, and there will be clubs that suffer as well. And again, obviously mentioned Doncaster, also Sunderland, um, uh, you know, struggle to match the financial requirements. And we might find that some clubs who have said that they can make the financial requirement decide next year that they can't, that it's too much. We don't know yet, but hopefully this is a progression towards women actually being able to earn a living from football and not just at two top clubs in the country. That's it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Matt Dickinson, Bill Edgar and Rebecca Myers. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet for only £8 for eight weeks. Search The Times subscription for more information. I'll be back on Thursday in the company of Gab Marcotti again. We'll see you then. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hold up. 